Instead of instructing others to mourn for Uriah, he sends word to Joab not to take his death too seriously. So when Bathsheba's mourning is complete, David sends for her and brings her to himself to be his wife. Problem solved. So then God sends Nathan to talk to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. Now remember, David grew up, he was a shepherd, right? And so he could relate very clearly with the wrong that had just occurred. And so in verse 5, it says that David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Isn't it funny how we can observe other people's sin and be so inflamed by it as we just kind of dust our own off. That's what's happening here. And so then, after Nathan has been winding this trap up on David, at that point in David's rage, Nathan springs the trap. He says, you are the man. You're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now... Therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So David, as it said, despised the word of the Lord. And while David repents, right? And the guilt of his sin is forgiven. Those consequences will not be reversed. So, a couple important big ideas from David's story. First is this. God sees our sin even when men do not. 
Our sins never slip past God unnoticed. He may delay judgment or discipline, but he will never ignore our sin. It would be easy to think, well, I mean, even David sinned, right? Man after God's own heart. So, I mean, if David sinned, well, you can't expect me not to, right? And so, how do you expect me to do any better? The point of this story is that it's not been written to encourage us to sin. This story has been written to amplify that we're all capable of it, as it says other places in Scripture, and to warn us of the danger of sin, and thus to encourage us to avoid sin at all costs. Number three, David's sin, like all sin, is never worth the price, ever. The negative consequences of sin far outweigh the momentary pleasures. Sin is never worth the price, even for those whose sin is forgiven. As David said in Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4, When I slept, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Now, I have to admit, I felt that in my lifetime. Where the weight of that sin just... Oh, and it was until I was ready to confess that sin. Until then... Oh. Number four... Disobedience to God always has a cost. You'll never get away unscathed by your sin. And here's something else. And many times, people in proximity to you are impacted by your sin. You know, so often, we can get this picture in our head like, uh, well, you know, I'm sinning. And God's there watching Mike sin, and he's just kind of like, you know, kind of that, not laughing, but, you know, just that, oh, Mike, you know, that's, that's really too bad. I, come on, little buddy, you, you can stop doing that. The fact of the matter is our sin grieves God. He's not up there just, oh, I hope he's going to figure it out. It breaks his heart. It grieves him. Ephesians 4.32 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Our sin grieves God. And it's for our own good to turn away from it. Deuteronomy 6.24 says, And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is in this day. So, you have the story of David. He made his choices. He earned it, right? He earned those consequences. Well, as I go through a story like that, I always... Somehow, you know, we have this thing about fairness 
in our world, especially in America. And so I think about Job. So I want to talk really quick about the story of Job as well. All was well with Job, and in Job 1, 2, and 3, describes his wealth as he had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the, late, of the East. Clearly, Job had it all. And this must have bothered Satan because he came to God. And what did God say to Satan about Job? In eight, then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan's not convinced and said to God, Well, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So God challenges Satan, saying, well, very well then. Everything he has in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. So Job lost just about everything, right? Satan took everything. His sheep, his oxen, his camels, his servants, his sons and daughters. But remarkably, Job did not lose lose faith. What was Job's response? Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So as the story goes on, Job's friends come along and uh, they go from, you know, trying to comfort him to basically start accusing him. Well, this is all happening because clearly you've got issues. And so Job knows that this is not the reason and tries to justify himself against their accusations. But his justification quickly turns to self-righteousness. And in chapter 22, Job's friends say, Is not your wickedness great? Are your sins not endless? You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man, owning land, an honored man, living on it. And you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are around you, why sudden peril terrifies you. This brings God's righteous indignation upon Job's friends. Job becomes discouraged partly because of the blame placed by his friends. And Job begins to question God himself. And this is when God answers Job out of the whirlwind. And he says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God puts Job in his place and in effect tells him, Who are you to question the God of the universe? And after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his prosperity and doubled his previous possessions. 
All his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances came to his house and dined with him in his house, and they offered him sympathy and comfort concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. Job lived 140 years after this and saw his children and their grandchildren to the fourth generation. Then Job died, old and full of days. So, what about Job? That doesn't seem fair. God calls him blameless and upright. And yet he let all of that suffering occur. I think it's all about perspective in two main areas. Or at least it is for me. And the first is to recognize the difference between our lifespan and eternity. And I think that's almost impossible for humans to understand. Not to minimize anybody's misery in life, but in context of eternity... The very worst of a life of 80 years of suffering compared to eternity is like breaking your toe on this. It's, and though it seems so terribly unfair in light of eternity. The second area I think is even more important. I think it's even harder for us as Americans to relate to this. And that is, you know, in John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief comes to only steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, let me ask you this. Take a second and think of three words that you would use to describe the abundant life. Three words. See, I don't know about you, but if I'm honest and not give you the church answer here, I will tell you that the vast majority of the time, those concrete terms that I use to describe the abundant life have far more to do with health, wealth, and prosperity, what my life will look like if I could only win the lottery, than really anything with spiritual substance. So here's a quote from a pastor friend of mine in Anchorage that I think addresses this really well. Dan Gerald says, Jesus Christ did not come to make your life comfortable. He did not come to remove your suffering. He did not come to make you healthy. He did not come to restore our nation. Jesus Christ came to restore people into fellowship with God. Now, that's not to say as you go through Scripture... Clearly, Jesus is comforting people. He's dealing with people who are suffering, and he removes some of that. He heals people, right? He does all those things, but that is not the purpose of those things. The purpose of all of those things, in any example that you see in Scripture, is to point people to God as a result of the power shown through whatever circumstance he's, that he's interacting with. So that's the harsh light. It's like, that's not why he's here. So all of these different things in my life sometimes of, God, why isn't, why isn't, God is using those circumstances in each of us hard and good, what we would measure as that, to be part of this whole restoring people into the fellowship with God. That's the only way we can have the abundant life that God promised us. That Jesus promised. That he said he came for. So that's 
the bright light, the harsh light. Now let's let's turn around and let's look at some of the the light that gives us comfort, light that shows us our way. So first a reminder, Romans 2.2 2 says, You therefore have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See, God is not ignoring our sin. He gives us every opportunity for repentance prior to righteous judgment. So practically then, how do we get out of this mess? One, we have God's grace. As we started earlier, right? Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So number one, we have God's grace. Number two, we have God's power. Second Peter 1, 3 says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So we have God's grace and we have God's power. Work with me here. Okay? Third, God's power gives us victory. 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jude one twenty four. now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So, let's try this again. We have God's grace, right? We have God's, you're working it, power. Thank you very much. And God's power gives us victory. Did I say anything about behaving better, trying harder, striving? No. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, because of the surpassing grace, greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. So 
When you're walking and failing, as we all will and do, you're not failed. You're weak. And in your weakness, God is strong. His power is perfected in our weakness. See, it's not about us. It is about God in us. God's power gives us victory. Finally, Billy Graham had this quote. said, Sin is the second most powerful force in the universe. For it sent Jesus to the cross. Let me say it again. Sin is the second most powerful force in the universe. For it sent Jesus to the cross. The only one force is greater. The love of God. Amen. So worship team as you come on up for our last song. I would just like to challenge. I guess it would be a good word for it. For many of you, just as as I was preparing this message, as I start talking about sin and areas of struggle or whatever, there's that thing that God's putting in my heart that he wants me to deal with. And it wouldn't surprise me if that's the case for many of you as well. And so I'd like you to think about what that thing is. Maybe it's that thing that you just keep Keep battling. It just keeps knocking you down. You get up and, oh my gosh, I failed again. Whatever that is. Lift that up. Confess that to God. And ask Him for His power that He gives freely to empower you, to give you victory over that in your life. All right? So take just a minute to do that.